My name is Mark. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And the first thing that I want to make sure all of us are on the same page on, uh, when we planted this church 11 and a half years ago in August of 2005, from the very beginning, our mission statement was loving him and loving his. In other words, when Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God and love people, we wanted to embrace that. And so it's humbling to meet so many family members and visitors that are here today and old friends and new friends. But I want to make sure all of you understand something that we're here today because God's love is real and we want in every way, shape, and form to display that love to you. Uh, so even now as I say that I love you and some of you have never met me and that's, that sounds like a weird statement to make, uh, I want you to know that scripture says because God first loved us that we can love others. And so uh, love is certainly in the air, but it's not the love of, of us that we're resting in. It's the love of a really, really good God. Amen. So welcome, uh, all those of you who are here. I want to begin with a question. Let's start with this question right here. What is the most beautiful thing you have ever, ever seen in your entire life, okay? The most beautiful. If you started ranking them, kids in the room, if you started thinking about it, what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? I I think mostly uh, beauty and uh, our eyes, they they fit into four different categories. The first category is people. Now, I'm setting you up for kind of a moment here in your aisle, right? Right? Because some of you spouses are kind of looking at each other like, you were always my answer, you know. And um, some of you parents are looking at your kids, you know, you're the apple of my eye sort of thing. But, but people are beautiful, right? Like they're, they're one of maybe the, the most beautiful things you've ever seen, okay? Maybe your bride on the, on the wedding day or whatever it may be. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure her beauty far exceeds now that it did on the, beauty, or on the wedding day. But, but people certainly grab our attention. Another thing that grabs our attention is landscape. The ocean, right? The mountains, the, the sunrise or the sunsets. How many of you guys, uh, let, let's just do a little bit of a poll, beach versus mountains. How many of you are beach people over mountains, okay? All right, okay. Not very many, my wife's included in that. How, so how many of you guys are mountain people? Okay, yeah, so the beauty of mountains, yeah. So you guys know, especially the mountain people, the moment you like get to Colorado for the first time, um, or the moment you get to the pseudo mountains and the Ozarks that don't count, but they're kind of cool. And you just step back, listen, and it takes your breath away a little bit. That's what beauty does. It, like, it grabs you. But after landscape, I think there's another aspect of beauty. Next slide, action. In other words, uh, there's been times where you have seen people extend grace and mercy to others. And you sat and watched the beauty of it. Uh, some of you, there were, there were moments where you were in the, uh, maybe the, the birthing room of your first child, right? And the whole, like, scene there was, was beautiful. It grabbed your attention. It took your breath away. Um, action certainly can breed beauty. But there's another aspect that I think falls into category, and that's events. Uh, there's been events in your life where, if you were to think back, and you were to categorize it or try to summarize it, you would say something like, That was the most beautiful day I have ever experienced in my life. Now, what if there was something that grabbed all four of these? Uh, What if there was moments or a moment when there was beauty found because of the people involved and the landscape and the scenery and the action and the event? I want to propose to you that all of creation was waiting on one moment. They were waiting on one event. They were waiting on one person. They
We're waiting on one landscape. And in one brush of God's sovereign hand, all of a sudden, beauty was dictated and defined in the resurrection of Christ. Now, what happens after the resurrection is some very interesting things. And today what we're going to study is one of the moments that Jesus has with his disciples post the resurrection, the beauty of it, of it all. So I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible, the text is going to be on the screen as well. The unbelievable beauty of the resurrection causes some stirring, some questions. John chapter 20, let's start here in verse 24. Now Thomas, and already some of you are like doubting Thomas. Here we go, okay? Don't label him quite yet. Hold on. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, he was one of the disciples, called the twin, which is interesting first to associate him with being a twin. The Aramaic word for Thomas means twin, so we can only surmise that maybe he has a twin somewhere. We don't know who that is specifically, but how many twin sets are in the room, okay? And you're sitting by each other, that's beautiful. Like speaking of... (laughs) beautiful moments. This is one of them right here. Thank you, guys. (laughs) This is awesome. This is awesome. Okay. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. We should have, like, can you guys stay for the second service? Just sit right there. That'd be great. Okay. (laughs) He was called the twin. Look at this. Was not with them when Jesus came. Now, that's a problem. So, apparently, Jesus came, and we're going to find out here in a second, eight days before Thomas was not a part of it. Now, I absolutely hate being late to anything. I hate it. Like, if I'm 30 seconds early, I'm like an hour late. That's kind of the motto I live by. And I've tried to understand, like, why is that in me? Why do I hate being late so much? I know some of you don't have a problem with that at all, okay? I've been uh, to meetings with you before, right? Like, um, but what I've realized is I hate being late because I don't want to miss out. Like the, the moment or the urge where, where I've known that I've missed out on something, I despise that. And so I'm always like, like I want to be at the party first just in case the party gets going without me because I don't want to miss the party. Well, Thomas has missed the party. Okay. Jesus has shown himself to the disciples, and he was not there. I problema for the bilingual verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, this is that moment in all of your life when you've missed something and then people try to summarize for you what happened and it kind of has that like rubbing it in factor, right? Uh, So, hey, Thomas, good to see you. Just want to let you know that we've seen the risen Christ, right, without you. I mean, there's something in that communication where Thomas is like, oh, that's wonderful. But inside he's like, are you serious? Are you serious? Like I missed that, right? Like some of you guys have gone on mission trips before. And every time that we go to Ecuador, like I always want to be with everyone because I know God is moving everywhere. But inevitably, the moment comes where a group comes back and they're like, you'll never believe what happened. And it's in that moment that I'm simultaneously excited and also want to punch them, right? Because I'm like, I I wish I was there. Like, why did I have to miss that, right? So this is that moment for Thomas. Uh, Hey, Thomas, uh, just in case you're curious, we have seen the resurrected Christ. Thomas doesn't uh, handle it well. He says, the end of verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never, what? I'll never believe. Now, um, I really, really appreciate something about this moment for Thomas. He is unbelievably honest. This is a typical moment for Christian performance. Right? Like, this is an epic moment, a beautiful, unbelievable time. And Thomas, in his heart, could have been doubting, but outwardly could have been just, oh, yes, this is, of course you have, and I cannot wait to see him too. I am so thankful that he does what so many of us struggle with, and that's just simply being honest about where we're at. Some of you really, really resonate with Thomas' statement. Unless I see it. Listen, I've doubted the resurrection, some of you are thinking, all of my life. And how am I not supposed to? I mean, unless I see the empty tomb for myself, unless I was there, unless, you know, there was some kind of interaction between the Christ and I, then I will believe. But if not, forget it. And, And some of you, again, are resonating with that. And I just want to encourage you with something about this place. One thing we celebrate here is honesty. I hope and pray that from this day forward and all the days of our past, that no one has ever felt like they have to be where they're not. Believe what they don't believe. So please know this. This place, I pray, is a continued place of honesty. So some of you are here who don't believe. You don't have to act like you do. There's no reason to sing the songs about the truth of the Scripture if you're not wrestling and resting in the fact that it's true. But the other thing that grabs me about Thomas's confession it's not, I don't want to see the face of Jesus. He specifically says that he wants to see the marks of suffering. It's the one thing that differentiates the Christ from any other lowercase g God. The Son of God humbles himself, leaves, though we could even say, the securities and the confines and the glory of heaven. And he comes, says John, in flesh and blood, takes on human form, first in a manger, he grows. And what happens as he grows and reveals who he is, he then is crucified and suffers and is pierced and a crown of thorns thrust into his skull. So why why is Thomas so interested in seeing The marks of suffering, it's because it's the one thing that's going to differentiate Jesus from any other character at this point. The Christ willingly put himself on a cross. And so Thomas wants to see it. He wants to know it. He says, I'll never believe. Now, eight days later, verse 26 says, so let's just count Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Sunday to Sunday, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now, this is a strange moment. Why, why would you say that they're inside again? Can I tell you? Because when Jesus showed himself to the disciples the first time, they were inside and Jesus just appeared. So it's, the scripture says the doors were locked and all of a sudden the Christ was amidst them, which many of us would then be running for the hills, right? Like, this is crazy, okay? I'm afraid of ghosts. So this is slightly odd, Right? They're inside again, eight days later. And look at this. And Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. 
I mean, just imagine this moment. You're just having a normal conversation. You look over, boom, there's Jesus, right? It's like, you have to stop doing this, Jesus, right? Like, why? Just knock. I don't know what the big deal is here, right? But then, even more interesting, he says what he told the disciples eight days before, and peace be with you, right? Like, that's his opening line, right? It's not like, ta-da, right? It's, it's peace be with you, okay? Which, when you stop and think about it, is actually probably an appropriate statement, okay? I know you, you may be troubled right now, but it is me. Peace be with you. Now, you ready for this? Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, well, please note, he hasn't, like, had a conversation with Thomas. There hasn't, you know, the disciples, we don't have record of them, like, telling on Thomas. Hey, Thomas said, Jesus just shows up. Put your finger here, says Jesus, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. And then look at these words from the Christ. Do not disbelieve but believe. As best as I can, I've tried to understand the emotions of Thomas in this moment. He, like the other disciples, um, primarily ran from the cross. They were scared. Uh, They themselves, I'm sure, didn't want to die. We find out that Peter denies the name of Jesus to a servant girl. And so now, all of a sudden, Thomas is putting his hands on the one that he knows was crucified. What I'm asking is, can you even begin to imagine that moment? Where all of a sudden the things that Jesus had told them, including in John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking directly to Thomas. And Jesus is talking about where he's going to go and the way to get there. And Thomas is like, I don't know which, which is the way to get there. And that's when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Talking right to Thomas. And so now all of a sudden, with those words echoing in his ear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas's hand on the body of what now must be the Savior. I say must be because if he rose from the dead, it's game over. If he conquered death, if it was a real event, if it was more than a myth, more than a fairy tale, if it's really something that has echoed through the course of time, all that creation was waiting on and now all that every person after would be longing for, if it really happened, then it's everything. And so imagine that moment as his hands are touching the side. And then all of a sudden, belief commanded in him from Christ. Jesus literally saying, don't disbelieve, but believe. Now, there's an ancient painting that shows this moment. It's from 1602. It's now in a museum in Germany. The other disciples depicted as hovering over. And Thomas's hand, finger here, literally in the body of Christ. Now... As powerful as this image is and as much as we can understand it and examine it, look at Thomas's response. Verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about the response, but I am drawn to one specific aspect. He simultaneously is the savior of the world, 
and Thomas's Savior. Thomas doesn't say in this moment as his hands are in the side of Christ, our Lord and our God. He says, my Lord and my God. Yes, the grace now that is seen in the forgiveness of sins can be encountered by all of the world. But Thomas knows how personal and individualized it is. It's for me too. My Lord and my God. It's his confession of belief. Now, um, I grew up in the church unlike many of you. And so uh, some of you who did not grow in the church, uh, up in the church, we have different battles and struggles. Anyone who grew up in the rhythm of going to church and coming on Easter and wearing the bright colors and the clip-on tie, et cetera, et cetera, kind of the Jesus Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like, our, our struggle is, okay, I know I believed it once, and I know I was passionate about it once, but what about now? You see, I hear people say, well, I grew up in the church, like that means something for their faith. Well, you know, I had uh, relatives that believed in Christ, and, and this one time six years ago, the gospel really impacted me, and I knew that Jesus had saved me, ransomed me from my sin, but now, you know, I'm just kind of doing my thing. Anyone who grew up in the church, that's their battle, becoming complacent, getting lethargic. Now, for those of you that are newer believers, okay, the battle for you right now is that, man, your joy and first love of Christ has confronted you. It's so real. You never tasted grace and love until you tasted the love of Christ. And so for you, the, uh, the, the battle is the enemy is trying to steal that away. Hey, is it really for you? Is it really your God, says the enemy? Is it really yours? Is this really a personal relationship? And for those of you that aren't believers at all, please hear me. The enemy and your flesh want nothing more than for you to sit in that nice lean back black chair and continue in disbelief. But what if for all three categories, this moment was maybe the renewed moment or the fresh moment or the first beautiful moment where all of a sudden the scales come off your eyes. And this God who has felt so distant all of a sudden becomes your God. And the words echoed from Thomas all of a sudden find refuge in your heart. My Lord and my God. Now, if it wasn't personal, if it's not yet individualized, Jesus makes a statement next that is the clearest statement in the entire Bible to me and you. It's the clearest. There's not one clear. Look at this in verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And of course Thomas's response would be, yes, Lord. But look at how Jesus continues, speaking right at all of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are you kidding me? This is the Christ 2,000 years ago looking every single one of us in the eyes. Oh, Thomas believed because he saw, but blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Blessed are those who will be sitting in a room 2,000 years from now hearing about how they thought the crown of thorns was enough, 
but everyone realized it wasn't. And in those moments, they're going to be blessed because they believe. Blessed are those who in their workplaces take a stand for the reality of who I am as God. Blessed are those who rise up in their neighborhood and tell people about the love of Christ. Blessed are those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from this point, Thomas, who will call out to me, my Lord, my God. Jesus is making a promise to me and to you amidst the doubt of Thomas. And that is an unbelievable gift. The next question then is, how are we blessed? Fair question. If we're blessed, what does that mean? If we're blessed, like how does that, how does that manifest it? Because some of you think of blessed and you're like, oh, my life is all going to be prosperous. My paychecks are going to rise. I'm never going to get cancer. My kids are never going to be unhealthy. My marriage is going to be perfect. Now, there's a different blessing that Jesus is talking about here. Next slide. It's the joy of living in anticipation. You see, Thomas's faith was realized. It was seen. But Jesus knew for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until he returns, the blessing would be everyone else who believes will get to live every day in the joy of anticipation of the moments when their faith is sight. Imagine that beauty. When all of your faith, all of your dreams, all of your hopes about who Christ is and what Christ has done is all of a sudden sight. Like Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, every eye will see. It's the joy of anticipation. Now, the question is, for every single one of us, are we living in the anticipation of the return of Christ? Because it's the anticipated life that shows true belief. He's coming back. I don't just believe he rose again. I believe that Revelation says in the wedding feast of the Lamb that he's going to return. So I want to help us process this a little bit. Next slide. A life lived in anticipation. Number one, you can start to gauge is never, ever hopeless. In the face of cancer, we still have a risen, reigning Lord. Does it diminish the pain, the hurt, the agony, the mourning? No. But in that, in that moment, we're never hopeless. Why? Because our flesh and our blood, our friends, our family, they're all fleeting. They're temporary here and now. In the face of a lost job, in the face of economic crisis in the home, in the face of the questions that you have about the future, what about this and what about that, in the face of relational chaos and divorce, those that belief in the truth of the resurrection, living in anticipated life for the return of Christ, always have hope. Amen? This is the primary aspect that differentiates us from the entire world. What in the world does the world have to look forward to? One more day? One more job? One more hope at a paycheck? Without Christ, what do you have to look forward to? With Christ, oh my goodness. The anticipated life, secondly, it creates a present urgency. Now, many of you guys know me. I'm always bouncing around, moving, 
Okay, I can't stay still. My daughter was telling me last night, you do four clicks with your right foot and four clicks with your left foot, and then you go back and forth. You know, she's kind of watching me at a restaurant last night, right? And I like to think that even just moving around, that it's because I'm urgent. I realize that it's not. I'm just a little bit antsy. But one thing that I do recognize often is I often, like, am on the edge of my seat. I rarely am, like, sitting back. This is what I picture. Those that are living in constant anticipation of the return of Christ, it's like they're always on the edge of their seat. There's this level of urgency. There's this constant sense of, like a thief in the night, he's going to return. And so I must be ready. And so I just ask, do you find yourself in life right now on the edge of your seat, urgently and intentionally existing in the power of Christ? Number three, life lived in anticipation gives hello purpose to the mundane. Some of you right now are feeling so lifeless in one more day of the rhythm. I say it here all the time, life is either living you or you're living life. But the mundane, the regular routine, the I got to get up and go to school one more day to raise the kids, one more day, one more day, one more day. If the resurrection is true and we have a life to anticipate in the return of Christ, the mundane, the normalcy, all of a sudden has tremendous purpose because I'm serving in that workplace for one reason, to be an ambassador of Christ. I'm in my home as an ambassador for Christ. I'm in my neighborhood as an ambassador for Christ. I'm loving others because my life is telling the world that he rose from the dead. It's the life of anticipation. And finally, the life of anticipation wants every single other person to encounter that joy. It's the joy that some of you get to wake up with. It's the joy that no matter what comes today, no matter what happens, no matter who clubs me or comes against me, no matter who uh, defames me or backstabs me, no matter what trial arises, he is risen and so I see your cancer with an empty tomb and I see your unhealthy relationship with an empty tomb and I see your sin struggle with an empty tomb and on and on and on the empty tomb literally drives all of life and we want every other person living in the mundane to encounter the joy of the hope of Christ so I ask you today what if all of a sudden this idea of what you had about believing in God completely shifted. Those of you that have resonated with Thomas at so many points in your life, God, if you will just move the clowns three degrees to the left, then I will believe in you. God, if you will just do this, God, if you'll just provide for our family, then, then, then. But what if the echoes of the voice of Christ was heard in this room right now, Thomas seems like he has the advantage. But Jesus flips the script. He says, blessed are you if you have not seen and yet believe. Let's stand together. Come on. So here's my question. What inside of you today 
is holding back from my Lord and my God? Is it sin that you feel like you can't be forgiven for? The power of the empty tomb is all of that sin is forgiven. Is it a past that you don't feel like can be rectified? You don't feel like can be erased? It's the past that he put on his shoulders. Listen, is it the fear of what about this and what about that in the future? It's the future that we lay down at his feet. And on and on. What is it today that's holding all of you back? Those who grew up in the church. Those who have a relationship with Jesus, but today find yourself complacent. Those who walk in here with no belief at all. What is holding you back from screaming out, my Lord, my God? What if every single one of us today heard the voice of Jesus saying, do not disbelieve, but believe. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, amen, come on, will appear a second time. And in that appearance, not to deal with sin. Because as he is dying on the cross, he says what? It is finished. Sin is done with, abolished. The ransom paid. But he's going to save those who what? Who are eagerly anticipating, waiting for his return. You see, we're not just here to celebrate the resurrection. We're here in anticipation of when he comes back. And so today we get to open an Easter present. And that Easter present is a blessing that comes for all of us who have not seen the risen, reigning Lord and still believe. Blessed are you.